following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Well, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all this morning. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the 15th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. As we turn our eyes and ears and hearts to the Word of God this morning, may the God of the Word bless you and keep you and make His face shine upon you. May the God of the Word be gracious to you and lift up His countenance upon you and leave you with his peace. I'd like to begin by reading Matthew 15. And so, as always, it's with a humbling sense of privilege and honor that I invite you to hear and heed the soul-satisfying, mind-renewing, Christ-exalting words of the true and living God. Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Then the Pharisees And scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the person What proceeds out of the mouth from the heart, this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, witness, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. 
But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and worshipped before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put him at his feet, put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The God of the Bible loves to fill his kingdom with those who, in the eyes of the world and even in the eyes of the church, are the most unlikely converts. Abraham the man that the Apostle Paul holds forth as the paradigm and pattern of saving faith was a pagan idol worshiper who served other gods when the God of glory appeared to him in Mesopotamia. Rahab, a prostitute from Jericho, was justified by faith when she allowed and showed hospitality to Joshua's spies. And perhaps the most famous unlikely convert of all, the Apostle Paul, a man who breathed out threats and murder against the disciples of Jesus, even requesting official documentation so that if he found any Christians, either men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He was, convic he was convinced that he was God's bounty hunter, hunting down Christians in order to deliver them into prison. 
We know that the glorified Christ appeared to him on that Damascus road in Acts chapter 9, and the rest is history. God took one of the most passionate persecutors of the Christian church and made him one of the most motivated missionaries for the Christian church. He regarded himself as the chief sinner, the foremost sinner, the leading sinner, the principal sinner. God loves to rescue and transform far off sinners and make them outstanding citizens in his kingdom. It's no wonder that in that humbling first chapter of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he considers these Gentile believers and then he says to them, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world and even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The God of the Bible loves to fill his kingdom with the most unlikely converts. I mean, look around. God chose to save the foolish a word from which we get our word moron in the Greek, moros. He, he chose to save morons. He chose to save the weak. He chose to save the low. He chose to save the despised and those who are considered nothing in this world so that those who boast, if there is any boasting and there should be boasting, we boast only in him. And the history of the church is full of examples of God taking the most unlikely converts and polishing them and then placing them as iridescent jewels on our worthy Redeemer's crown. John Newton, the former slave trader, after considering his own conversion to Christ, famously stated that he never despaired of anyone's conversion after God saved him. As we come to the 15th chapter of the gospel according to Matthew, the apostle brings us face to face with more unlikely converts who come to glorify and exalt and magnify the God of Israel and worship at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even if we don't agree on whether or not these people ended up being devoted disciples or faithful followers of Jesus, we can at least agree that the individuals who glorify God in this chapter and worship at the feet of Jesus in this chapter are among the most unlikely people to do so. But before Matthew delves into all of this, he recalls yet another heated confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. We know that these confrontations and these clashes will continue until they culminate in the crucifixion of Jesus. The chapter begins with a confrontation regarding tradition, and then it transitions into a glorious account of the power and compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we make our way through this chapter this morning, Matthew calls our attention to four situations that compel us to consider four realities which will serve as the four main focal points for our time together this morning. He would have us consider the broken thinking of blind hypocrisy in verses 1 to 20. Matthew would have us consider, secondly, the bold persistence of authentic faith in verses 21 to 28. 
He would have us consider, thirdly, the breathtaking wonder of Christ's power in verses 29 to 31. And lastly, he'd have us consider the bountiful provision of Christ's compassion in verses 32 through 39. And I would remind you that Matthew's aim, friends, in all of this, as we return week after week to look at Matthew's gospel and consider it, his aim in all of this, each and every story, is to bring his readers then and his readers now to a proper response to both the king and his kingdom. And when we compile the various elements of Matthew's gospel, the five-fold response that he is clearly aiming for when it comes to the king is, number one, a response of wholehearted obedience to him. A response of unashamed identification with him. A response of undivided love for him. A response of childlike belief in him. And a response of unrestrained worship of him. But it's not just the king that Matthew wants us to respond to. He also wants us to respond accordingly to the kingdom. And in at least seven specific ways. And so in addition to a proper response to the king, Matthew wants us to, number one, prize the all-surpassing worth of the kingdom. We saw that in the parable of the pearl of great price. He wants us to proclaim the arrival of the kingdom. He wants us to pray for the expansion and coming consummation of the kingdom. He wants us to prioritize the matters of the kingdom, Matthew 6, 33. He wants us to protect the sacred witness of the kingdom. And he wants us finally to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And last but not least, he wants us to prepare for the final judgment that will precede our joyful inheritance of the kingdom. Matthew 25 and following. That is how the apostle Matthew, under the superintending influence of the spirit of God, wants his readers to respond to the king and his kingdom. And as we delve into chapter 15 this, ma- this morning, Matthew calls our attention, first of all, in verses 1 to 20, to the broken thinking of blind hypocrisy. The broken thinking of blind hypocrisy. You'll remember that chapter 14 ends with the crowds of common people surrounding Jesus and scores of sick people touching him. And because of their illnesses, they would have been considered ceremonially unclean and defiled by the people of the day. But as we're seeing again and again, instead of Jesus becoming unclean and defiled as a result of his contact with the crowds, he remains the holy, undefiled, unstained son of God who brings instant restoration and renewal to all who come in contact with him. And so this astonishing situation serves as a very fitting introduction to Matthew 15 and the subject of uncleanness and defilement. Only here, the problem isn't directly with Jesus. The problem is with his disciples who have obviously learned from Jesus, which is why the religious leaders confront Jesus and not his disciples. In this first section, verses 1 to 20, Matthew reveals three realities regarding the religious leaders of his day. And it all centers around what they truly and ultimately cared about. He shows that they cared more about the traditions of men than the commandments of God. That's verses 1 to 6. 
He shows us, secondly, that they cared more about the outward show of religion than the heartfelt worship of God, verses 7 to 9. And thirdly, he shows that these men cared more about external rituals than inward holiness, verses 10 to 20. And so first, Matthew shows us in verses 1 to 6 that they cared more about the traditions of men than the commandments of God. He begins by telling us that the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Friends, this is the only time out of nine that Matthew reverses the order and places the Pharisees before the scribes. And this may be because the Pharisees were the main instigators of this confrontation with with Jesus. And they they brought the scribes along as backup because they were the experts in both the Old Testament scriptures and the Jewish traditions, the scribes. And they came from Jerusalem, notice. And from this point on in Matthew, that phrase Jerusalem becomes kind of an ominous, dark word associated with the Lord's coming suffering and death and rejection by the Jewish people. But they confront Jesus and they accuse the disciples of breaking the tradition of the elders. Why, they ask, do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. You need to understand that for the Pharisees, the matter of hand washing wasn't a hygiene issue. It's not like a parent asking their children to wash up before a meal. That's not what's happening here. This had to do with ritual cleansing. And what you need to know up front is that this was not a matter of disobeying the word of God. It was a matter of breaking the tradition of the elders. The law required the priests to wash their hands and feet before serving in the tabernacle, Exodus chapter 30. But no such requirement was ever laid upon the people when it came to eating meals. The rabbis came up with this rule, and they passed it along through oral tradition and eventually solidified it in what's called the Mishnah in about 200 AD, which was basically an authoritative collection of oral tradition passed down from generation to generation, hence passed on from the elders. The Mishnah has an entire section on hand washing, and it's very, very specific. From the exact amount of water that was to be used to the proper utensils that were to be used, it talked about the condition of the water, the posture of the individual pouring the water, and the exact way to hold one's hands while the water was being poured. Alfred Edersheim wrote the following. The water was first poured on both hands, held with the fingers pointed upwards, and must run up the arm as far as the wrist. It must drop off from the wrist, for the water was now itself unclean, having touched the unclean hands. And if it ran down the finger again, it would again render the fingers unclean. The process was repeated with the hands held in the opposite direction, with the fingers pointed down. And then finally, each hand was cleansed by being rubbed with the fist of the other. Now, to neglect the rabbi's teaching on this matter had severe consequences. You could be excommunicated from the temple. That means cut off from worshiping God. One man by the name of Eliezer Hanok questioned in that day the rulings on the uncleanness of hands and was not only cut off from the temple, but when he died, they placed a rock on top of his coffin to signify that this man died worthy of stoning. Another Jewish document stated that if you failed to do this ritual of hand washing before a meal, you could be attacked by Sibitha, which was a potentially deadly demon or disease. 
The Talmud taught that a person should walk up to four miles if necessary to wash their hands properly if no water was around. Again, understand that this had nothing to do with hygiene and nothing to do with disobeying God's word had everything to do with defiling yourself spiritually. That's what their take was. And so the Pharisees regarded the action of the disciples as a serious transgression. And again, it's likely that the Pharisees believed that it was Jesus who probably taught and discouraged his disciples from not practicing this tradition, which is why they're addressing him. But what's clear is that the disciples, and more than likely Jesus himself, paid no attention to this tradition because it wasn't rooted in divine revelation. It was rooted in human tradition. Now, understand that tradition itself, friends, is not a bad word. The word in the Greek refers to something given over from one individual to another. Paul, you remember, commanded the believers in Thessalonica to, quote, stand firm and hold to the traditions that they were taught by the apostles, either in spoken word, which is oral tradition, or in his letters, written tradition. The problem that Jesus is about to address here is when tradition trumps the clear commands of God in the Bible. When tradition gets in the way of obedience to God, well, you'll notice, verse 3, that Jesus responds with a question. He responds to their question with a question. And why do you break the commandment of God, he asks, for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, which you, have get, which you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Jesus completely turns the tables on these guys. They were concerned about the disciples breaking traditions established by men. Meanwhile, they were clearly guilty of breaking commandments given by God. Specifically, the fifth commandment about honoring one's father and mother. You see, the fifth commandment clearly implied more than just simply honoring and respecting your parents with your words. It involved taking care of them and providing for them, either financially or materially, if they needed help. That was God's intention behind the fifth commandment. Even the Jewish historian Josephus understood the fifth commandment to imply this. He wrote that, quote, the law ordained that parents should be honored second only to God, and it hands over to be stoned anyone who fails to reward his parents for the benefits he freely received from them. Close quote. However, along came human tradition developed by highly religious Jews that allowed them to get around the fifth commandment. According to them, a person could declare their money or their property to be a gift to God, payable to him at their death. We hear the word Corbin. It's, it means it's, it's a gift dedicated to God. And since a person's obligation to God is higher than every other obligation, they could get around the obligation to use their money and their possessions to help their parents. It was a despicable evasion of the fifth commandment. You have the resources to help your parents in their old age, but instead you say, well, this money and these resources that I have, they belong to God. And it all goes to the temple when I die, so I can't use any of it for you. Sorry. This appeared to be a common practice in that day. 
In fact, in the Kidron Valley, southeast of Jerusalem, archaeologists found a burial site and inscribed on the, the lid of a grave with a person and his treasures was written, all that a man may find to his prophet in this tomb is an offering to God from him who is within it. In other words, they used it to prevent stealing treasures and graves. It would leave on your conscience, man, I'm stealing stuff that belongs to God. In other words, if you steal these possessions, you're stealing from God. This tradition completely nullified the fifth commandment, and Jesus pulls no punches here. He points out, here's what God commanded, honor your father and your mother, but you say you don't have to do it if you decide that your resources and your possessions belong to God. It was selfishness dressed in holiness. It was disobedience to God. That's what it was. Jesus exposes the indisputable fact that they cared more about the traditions of men than the commandments of God. For the sake of their man-made tradition, they canceled out, nullified, and completely set aside the word and commandment of God. And Jesus calls them hypocrites. Hypocrites. They talk so highly of the law of God. And they teach the law of God to others and they tell others to observe the law. But when it comes to themselves, they hold to, the, they hold to human traditions that allow them to disobey God's law in the name of holiness. That kind of hypocrisy is detestable to God. How do we know? Well, because it was detestable to Jesus. And if it's detestable to Jesus, we can be absolutely certain that it is detestable to both the Father and the Holy Spirit because they're all united. Jesus sees right through their empty religion and right through their hypocrisy. The Puritan Thomas Brooks said that it is not the presence of hypocrisy, but the reign of hypocrisy that damns the soul. It's not the presence of hypocrisy that damns the soul. It's the reign, the rule of hypocrisy that damns the soul. The distinction that he makes is vitally important See, it's not the existence and the occasional display of hypocrisy in a person's life that will lead him or her to hell. No, what will lead you to certain damnation is when hypocrisy is the air that you breathe, the ground that you stand on, the clothing that you wear, and the reality that you live in. And I think most of us know what hypocrisy is. It's the practice of professing to be something that you are not, and the practice of claiming to have something that you don't actually have. To be more specific, as it relates to God's word, a hypocrite is someone who claims to know God, love God, and worship God when they do not know God. They do not love God, and they do not worship God. A hypocrite is someone who claims to have high moral standards when it comes to his or herself, and when it comes to others, but when it comes to their own personal experience, they themselves do not walk or even attempt to walk according to such standards. The Pharisees and scribes cared more about the traditions of men than the commandments of God. But that's not all. In verses 7 to 9, Jesus exposes another reality. They cared more about the outward show of religion than the worship of God. Look at verse 7. He says, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you. When he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Edmund Calamy said, to be lip holy 
and heart hollow is a brief character of a hypocrite. The religious leaders in Jesus' day were lip holy, but heart hollow. They care more about the outward show of religion than the worship of the living God. Jesus actually quotes here Isaiah 29, 13, and he links these religious leaders typologically to the idolatrous Israelites in Isaiah's day who pretended to draw near to God in worship. They said all the right words. They sang all the scriptural sound songs. They, they probably prayed impressive prayers, but it was all a show. It was all a show. It was all devoid of inward affections and authentic worship. It should remind us of the people in Ezekiel's day as well. As God's mouthpiece to the people of Israel, God said to Ezekiel, They come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people. And they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. They will not do it. Like Jesus, God contrasts the words coming out of the mouths of the people with what's actually in the hearts of the people. He says their hearts are set on gain, not on God. Their lips and their hearts were not in sync. Their hearts were set on selfish gain. Their hearts were filled with greed and covetousness. But it goes to show, if anything, that in our worship of God, whether here on Sunday mornings or during the week when we're alone, the most important thing is what's happening in the heart when you are worshiping God. What's happening in the heart. Jesus accuses them of drawing near to God with their lips, but their hearts, their, their inner selves, their true selves were so far from God. And so their worship, according to the Lord Jesus, was vain. It was useless. It was empty. The interesting thing about Jesus reaching back to Isaiah 29, 13, is that in response to Israel's hypocrisy, God says in the very next verse, Isaiah 29, 14, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning shall vanish. And that's exactly literally what is happening in the ministry of Jesus, as we've seen in the last few chapters. Jesus is working wonder upon wonder amongst the people and in doing so, he is causing the wisdom and the discernment of Israel's religious leaders to literally crumble and collapse as his divine wisdom is put on display. Through Jesus, God's wisdom is conquering the flawed, sinful wisdom of the men who cared more about the outward show of religion than the worship of God. And then we see in verses 10 to 20 that they cared more about external rituals than inward holiness. More about external rituals than inward holiness. He says that he called the people to him. And he said to them, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. The religious leaders obviously heard this and they were offended at it. This saying rocked their world because of how 
they were taught. These religious leaders had impressed upon so many of the people in that day. It's what goes into your mouth that can defile you. Jesus says that doesn't have anything to do with it. What defiles you is what comes out of the heart. That's what makes you unclean before God is what wells up within a person. This was a, this was a shocking saying to them. And notice the response. Then the disciples, verse 15, came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? In other words, this is not necessarily a rebuke, but this is them informing the Lord Jesus that this was a hugely offensive thing that he said. He answered them, verse 13, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. This should take us back to chapter 13 and its similarity to the parable of the weeds, do you remember? The son of man plants his seed, which are the citizens of the kingdom, believers, and the sons of the enemy are those planted by the enemy who grow up alongside the believers, the weeds. They're sown by the enemy. Jesus says, these religious leaders, my father hasn't planted them. I didn't plant them, but they'll eventually be rooted up. Leave them alone. We don't need to worry about them. It's basically what he's saying here. Every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. And that's true in this room as well. Every one of us has been planted either by God in Christ to grow up, to bear fruit for God. Or you've been planted by the enemy, the evil one. You've been planted by sin and the effects of Adam's fall. You've been planted by the fall. The day's coming when everyone who does not belong to God is going to be uprooted gathered and thrown into the fire as we learned in the parable of the weeds. He says in verse 13, let them alone. They are blind guides. In other words, let them be upset. Let them be offended. They are blind guides. They don't see what they ought to see here. And they're guiding other people, which is dangerous. He says, if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. What a picture here. You have Israel's religious leaders totally blind to spiritual reality, totally blind to their Messiah, totally blind to the kingdom that is literally operating, bearing fruit, demonstrating the power of God in their midst and they don't see it. And they're leading others into a pit. That's how Jesus describes false teachers is they're blind leading the blind or deceived false religions, blind leading the blind into a pit of destruction, eventual certain destruction. And Peter steps in, verse 15, and says to Jesus, explain the parable to us, explain what you're talking about. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? In other words, your body has a way of getting rid of bad stuff. And most people experience that every day. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Do you, do you hear what he's saying here? What really makes a person unclean in the eyes of God is not a failure to wash your hands in this ceremonially crazy way. What makes you defiled and unclean before a holy God is a sinful heart that results in sinful thoughts, sinful words, and sinful actions. That's what he's saying. 
That's what defiles a person. For out of the heart, verse 19, come evil thoughts. He breaks these into categories. Evil thoughts and then evil actions. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, and then evil words. False witness and slander. This is a tragic, tragic explanation of the human heart. The the human heart fashioned by God to be a storehouse of God's wisdom and God's treasure and God's beauty and God's wonder and desires after God and longings and affections for God has been severely affected by the fall into sin. And so now the human heart, as John Calvin said, is a factory of idols. It's a factory that creates all manner of evil thoughts, a factory producing murder and adultery, both physical and emotional and spiritual, sexual immorality, theft. Anytime there's any kind of adultery, it all began in the heart. Anytime there's any kind of stealing, it all comes from the heart. Any kind of false witness and lying about others or slandering people. It's not just a sin of the lips and the ears, as was pointed out recently by Tim Chalice. It takes two people to slander. It takes two people to gossip. It takes a lying tongue, an evil tongue, but it also takes a sinful, curious ear to entertain that. But it all begins in the heart, Jesus says. See, these, these individuals were so focused on external rituals that they had no regard for true inward holiness that comes from the heart. That's what Jesus is addressing. And then he says in verse 20, as he concludes, these are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone, does not defile anyone before God. And so this is the broken thinking of blind hypocrisy. Broken thinking that says the traditions of men are more important than the commandments of God. Broken thinking that says the outward show of religion is more precious than the authentic worship of God. It's broken thinking that says external rituals are more important than inward holiness. Now, I think we all have traditions and they can be good and some can be bad. I mean, we as a church, we have our own traditions, right? We worship at 10 o'clock. We tend to do the Lord's Supper every Sunday, but... Nowhere in the Bible, you know, would it prevent us from saying, well, maybe we can bring the Lord's table to biweekly or monthly or whatever it is. Like these are, these are traditions that, that we've established that are neither good or bad. We just think they're helpful. But there's some traditions that some people would say are absolute like doctrine, right? I and mean, this, this, this is a, no, a non-negotiable, right? I admire a brother who recently told me, he, he, he's in this town, that I guess his denomination wanted to add to their articles of faith, to their, basically their statement of faith, uh, basically that they adhere to expository preaching. And as much as he's a fan, and I'm a fan of expository preaching, that, that it is a tradition, it's a, tradition a, a traditional way of delivering the word of God, but to, to, to make it into the article of faith, to, to something that the church must subscribe to in terms of their faith before God, it's going too far. And he stood his ground and it never happened, thankfully. But again, it's so quick that we, can, that we can teach as doctrines the traditions of men. Teach as divine teachings the traditions of men. That's a very dangerous thing. And so examine the traditions that you have and, and compare them to the word of God. 
Don't ever allow a tradition to trump obedience to the word of God. I mean, what they were doing with their property seemed like it was honoring to God, right? Well, I'm not, I, this money that I have is, is going to be given to the temple when I die. So I can't give it to my needy, frail mother or my needy, frail father. Uh, I, I need to reserve it for God. It's, it's God's property That's, that was despicable to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's other traditions we have in the Christian church. I won't go into all of them. Playing cards. Playing different games, dancing, dances. It's interesting to see the history of the church and uh, traditions that have, have, have come and gone. And churches saying, you know, this is totally sinful. The other church saying, you know, this is not sinful. But this is where blind hypocrisy leads. Leads down a road of broken, broken thinking, flawed thinking. Well, next we see the bold persistence of authentic faith. And this is really the heart of the chapter. Verses 21 to 28. The bold persistence of authentic faith. Verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, this is intended to produce in us kind of a gasp. Like, Tyre and Sidon. You study these guys in the Old Testament. They were bad cities. Idolatrous cities. Sensual. Sick cities. Proud cities, boastful cities. And so as time goes by, we know the doctrine of man's depravity. Men and women do not get better over time. Like clay in the sun, it will all, men and women only get harder and harder and harder. He goes to this Gentile territory. Again, we are studying the king and his kingdom. We are seeing Matthew explain the actions of the king, the teachings of the king, and we are seeing the expansion of the kingdom began in Israel, and now it's branching out through the rest of the world, throughout the book of Acts, and now even now today in the Great Commission. But we have an ironic turn in the story. The people that should have recognized the Messiah are condemning him and his disciples because he's not holding to human tradition. And it's as though Jesus now turns to the Gentiles, which in a redemptive historical sense, this is a big theme in the Bible, the rest of the New Testament. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. How many times do you find in the book of Acts that God sent first the message of salvation to Israel? Israel rejected it, and now God has turned to the Gentiles, not as a plan B, but it's always been his plan. The church is not a parenthesis. It's always been his plan to create one new man in place of Jew and Gentile so that Paul could say there's neither Gentile nor Jew. There's one creation in Christ now. But we have a picture here in this historical story of what literally happened in redemptive history. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him, and yet he's now turning to the Gentiles until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And I do believe that Romans 11 leaves us with hope that there will be, in, before the coming of Christ, a great ingathering of, of Jewish people who recognize Jesus as their Messiah. So what an interesting picture here. They're concerned about ritual uncleanness, and he goes to a land of uncleanness. They're concerned about defilement, and Jesus goes straight into Gentile territory. Remember, we talked about last time how Jews would not travel 
into Gentile territory. And if they did, they would, either, they would either ride a horse so that their feet didn't touch Gentile lands, or they would remain on the shore of the place, uh, close enough to the water so that, so that the water and the waves washed away the Gentile uncleanness, and then they could walk on it afterwards. That's, that's literally what they did. Our master goes straight into the darkness. He goes straight into Gentile territory because he has a people there to awaken. And watch this. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. This is the only place in the New Testament where we find this word Canaanite. And if you're, if you're, if you're familiar with your Bible, this should produce in you another gasp. The Canaanites, who were they? They were the arch enemies of Israel throughout the Old Testament. This Canaanite woman comes and how she heard about him, what she recognized about him, we're not told, but she knows. This Gentile woman knows that with him, there is salvation, there is help, there is hope, there is restoration, there is wholeness, there is healing. There is something in him that she needs and she recognizes it. Again, compare that with the blind religious leaders who completely missed the Messiah. Here's this Gentile woman who approaches him and we have a lot to learn from her. She's pleading for his mercy. And of all the people to call him son of David, a Gentile woman refers to him as the long-awaited son of David, promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that, 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 that one of David's descendants would occupy his throne forever and rule over the kingdom of God. And who recognizes it? The scribes, the Pharisees? No, they're, they're tripping over their, their traditions. This Canaanite woman recognizes him as the long-awaited son of David, Messiah, king, prince, ruler to come. And his response is shocking because we have been seeing again and again his compassionate responses to the needy. Verse 23, but he did not answer her a word. And all his disciples came and begged him. And we don't know what they're begging here. They're begging to send her away, which either implies, Lord, heal her right away so she can get away from us, lead her so that she can go on her way. Or if they really are like, just like the religious leaders, concerned about uncleanness, which that's more than likely the case here. Because as we're going to see in the book of Acts, even after the day of Pentecost, the church, the Jewish people within the church still struggled with Gentile inclusion and Gentile relationships. So more than likely, they are wanting to just send her away. They're crying out. She's crying out loud for Jesus. He answered, verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is fascinating because the one place in the Old Testament where we find language like lost sheep and house of Israel is in Ezekiel 34, a key messianic passage referring to the coming son of David who's come to gather the lost, gather his sheep, and save the house of Israel. And so Jesus reaches back to Ezekiel 34 and says, I was, I, I was sent for the, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And notice her persistence. But she came, and your ESV says, knelt. Do whatever you can to make a note there. The word everywhere else in the New Testament refers to worship. 
It was, it was used, the same word was used when the wise men came from the east in Matthew 2 to worship at the feet of the Son of God. It's the same word that was used last time in Matthew 14 to describe the disciples in the boat worshiping Jesus, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. It's a word that means worship. She came and worshiped. I mean, the ironies are all over the place. He just addressed the religious people who drew near to God in vain worship. And then Matthew turns right around and shows us a picture of real, authentic worship. And it's in an unlikely place. Gentile territory from an unlikely convert, an unlikely woman, a Canaanite woman who recognizes Jesus is the son of David and more than likely recognizes that he is God because repeatedly she calls him Lord in connection with son of David. In other words, it's not just a term of politeness, like sir. No, she recognizes that this is deity in the flesh, able to cast out any demon from any life. But she came and worshiped before him, saying, Lord, help me. He just sang that song, saving, helping. I mean, this is literally that, that song in the Bible right here. Help me. R.C. Sproul said, These are the, this is the most important prayer that anyone could ever pray to God. Lord, help me. Help me. I'm lost. I'm ruined. I can't fix myself. I can't save myself. I can't draw up a, a righteousness of my own that could ever commend me to you. Help me. Save me. Bring me out of this pit. Friends, this is saving faith coming out in her. Help me. And he answered, again, he, 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 he responds in an unlikely way, uncommon way. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. This is one of the most, it's one of the harshest things Jesus has ever said. And commentators like to point out that, hey, well, this is not the feral dogs that rule the streets. This is the household dog. At the end of the day, it still calls her a dog, Right? I mean, it might not be the vicious dog over here licking the sores of lepers and all that, but this is a household dog nonetheless. And what Jesus is saying here is, is um, I mean, it's true. In that day, you, a father, a loving father would not take what belonged to the children at the table and say, you know, let's give it to the dogs. Your priority was your children. This is re- really what's... What he's communicating is, again, that he's come for the the children of Israel. And so it's not right to take what's theirs and give it to you. Again, we know, based upon his response in the end, that he's testing her. He intends to answer her. He intends to flex his compassion and his mercy in helping her. But he's, he's testing her. She, verse 27 says, yes, Lord. She agrees. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She agrees with him. She says, yes, but I'd be content just to have a little crumb that falls from the master's table. And friends, this should be the posture of every single one of us who knows anything about the mercy of God and the depravity of our, ourselves. And what's good news about this is that as we continue to read the biblical story, 
we not only are fed from the master's table, but we Gentile dogs are invited up to the master's table to eat of the master's delicacies. That's the glorious salvation that we celebrate in Christ. He doesn't just leave us at the bottom of the table. He brings us up. He says, eat, be satisfied, be filled in me. Then Jesus answered her, verse 28, Oh, woman, great is your faith. There is two times in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus commends a person's faith, and both of them are Gentiles. This woman and then the centurion back in chapter 8. Again, the most unlikely converts being brought into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. There's a lot to learn from her. I want to point out several. Authentic faith, as we see in this story, cries out to the person of Jesus. Authentic faith knows where to cry. Authentic faith looks to Christ. Saving faith looks up and says, you must save. You must help. There's no help anywhere else. Authentic faith, secondly, appeals to the mercy of Jesus. Not only cries out to the person of Jesus, but appeals to the mercy of Jesus. Have mercy on me. There's a sense of unworthiness there. We know that we deserve wrath, and if there's going to be any salvation, any of me inheriting the kingdom, it's going to be based upon the mercy of Christ. Mercy is that which in God relieves sinners from their misery and their distress. You have someone break into your home and try to harm your family and you pull, a, you pull out a shotgun to defend your family and before you, the only thing holding you back is, is, is a finger and a trigger, right? Mercy. You're not, you're, the only thing holding, that, holding you back is, is, is mercy. And when we think of our relationship to God, how long was he merciful towards us in our lost estate, our lost state? How long was he, in a sense, keeping our destruction at bay, keeping our punishment off? She appeals to his mercy. Authentic faith, thirdly, recognizes the lordship of Jesus. Do you can to, to see that throughout, the, throughout the, the account here? Lord, Lord, Lord. Fourthly, authentic faith relentlessly pursues the presence of Jesus. She doesn't go away. She doesn't go away. He, he ignores her in the beginning. He gives a response of why he came, who he came for. He gives another response, and what does she, how does she respond? She continues to pursue the presence of Christ. That's what authentic faith does. Fifthly, authentic faith humbly worships the greatness of Jesus. She kneels before him and she worships him. Authentic faith, seventh, agrees with the words of Jesus. That's when you know somebody truly believes is they agree with what God says. There's no objections. There's, there's nothing there. She just agrees. And lastly, authentic faith receives the blessing of Jesus in verse 28. RVG Tasker wrote about her faith. This is what he says. She does not stay to argue that her claims are as good as anyone else's. She does not discuss whether Jew is better than Gentile or Gentile as good as Jew. She does not dispute the justice of the mysterious ways by which God works out his divine purpose, choosing one race and rejecting another. All she knows is that her daughter is grievously tormented and she needs supernatural help and that there is 
And that, and that here in the person of the Lord, the son of David, is one who is able to give her that help. And she is confident that even if she is not entitled to sit down as a guest at the Messiah's table, Gentile dog that she is, yet at least she may be allowed to receive a crumb of the uncovenanted mercies of God. Wow. This is the bold persistence of authentic faith, which rides right on the heels of shallow worship amongst the Jews, and now we have authentic worship amongst this Gentile woman. And the story just gets better. As we move into the, the, the close of the chapter, we see thirdly in verses 29 through 31, the breathtaking wonder of Christ's power. We've seen the broken thinking of blind hypocrisy. We've seen the bold persistence of authentic faith. And now we see the breathtaking wonder of Christ's power. Jesus went on from there. Verse 29, and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. Mark's account tells us that he heads towards the, the region of, of, of the Gadarenes. Again, more Gentile territory. And he went up the mountain and he sat down there, which is almost parallel language to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, which points us ultimately back to the language used again and again to describe Moses ascending the mount, ascending the mount, ascending the mount of God. Matthew's pointing something out very clearly here, that this is the new Moses, the new prophet like Moses who is to come. And seeing great crowds come to him, they came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them. So again, not only is he in Gentile territory, but now there's uncleanness piled on top of more uncleanness because not only are these are Gentiles, but they're sick and they're lame and they're crippled and they're blind. And he healed them all. There was not one disease that he couldn't conquer. He heals all of them. So that the crowd wondered. They were astonished when they saw the mute speaking and the crippled healthy and the lame walking and the blind seeing. What did we see earlier? We saw the blind Pharisees not seeing. And now we see these Gentiles seeing what they ought to see. And what is it? Well, look at the last part of verse 31. They glorified the God of Israel. This is astonishing. Because when you look at that phrase in the Old Testament, the God of Israel, the God of Israel, glorifying the God of Israel, there's a story where you find that repeated again and again and again when the ark of God is captured by the Philistines. And what we find there in that chapter is that in order to have these plagues go away, this plague of, of sores go away, the, the priests within the, within the camp of the Philistines say, if you send this back a certain way, then the God, if you glorify the God of Israel in this way, this, this plague will stop. So what's interesting about that story is that in the story of the Philistines, they glorify God in order to be healed of their sores. These Gentiles here glorify God because they've been healed. Very interesting links to the Old Testament here, this, this, whole, this whole chapter. 
This is the breathtaking wonder of Christ's power. This, this is God's way of saying Gentiles are glorifying the God of Israel. That's why we believe here that these are Gentiles here. Glorifying, magnifying, acknowledging the worth and greatness of Israel's God. Very evident in the life of the Lord Jesus. That's the breathtaking wonder of Christ's power. And lastly, we come to the bountiful provision of Christ's compassion. Look at verse 32. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. So either they haven't eaten anything in three days or after these three days of healing them. I mean, can you imagine three days of crowds just flocking to our Lord, throwing people at his feet and, and him just healing them? And, they, and, and three days of this. So either they've gone without food for three days or now it's the third day and they have nothing to eat. They've run out of food. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, he says, lest they faint on the way. Our Lord had such a concern for physical need in addition to spiritual needs. And the disciples said to him, and how they forgot of what happened in the last chapter, I'm, I'm not sure, but I look to myself and our forgetfulness regarding how God works in our lives. He's, they say, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves of the fish and the fish. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied. A lot of critics and commentators, liberal mainly, like to point out that this was probably a mistake somewhere in translation or manuscripts that um, why would Jesus, why would they, why would they, why would Matthew and some of the other gospel writers put one multitude feeding after another multitude feeding? I mean, we're just within a chapter of what we saw last time in chapter 14, Jesus feeding the multitudes. The key difference, of course, is what he's doing for Gentiles in chapter 15, what he did for the Jews in chapter 14. The reason this story is so remarkable is that it literally is a picture of his interaction with the Canaanite woman. He literally feeds these people bread from his hand. They all ate, says, and they were satisfied, full, filled, stuffed. And they took up seven baskets full of the pieces left over. You remember last time there were 12 left over, one for each of the disciples. Here there are seven left over. Commentators try to find significance in 12 and then in seven, and they rack their brains thinking, what's the significance of seven? I think Matthew's just telling us we had seven left over. And these baskets, by the way, are, are bigger baskets than the baskets mentioned in chapter 14. Those who ate were 4,000 men, verse 38, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. This is interesting because, again, 
So many people see disconnectedness within the chapter, and yet the chapter is flowing with one theme. It's Christ's compassion for the Gentiles. And the story in between the story of defilement and ritual uncleanness and the multitudes being fed bread from the master's hand is the story of this Canaanite woman that becomes the larger story of our redemption. We who do not deserve to sit at the master's table and would be content to eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table are literally fed by the master himself. The religious people who should recognize and worship him do not recognize him and do not worship him. And the unlikely people that he comes into contact with in Gentile territory who should not recognize him and should not worship him end up being the ones who recognize him and worship him, glorify the God of Israel, and worship at the feet of the Lord Jesus. That's Matthew 15. Hand washings and rabbinic traditions might seem like irrelevant matters for us today, but I want you to note that the dangers mentioned in this chapter still threaten our souls. For example, the temptation to build upon what men have said instead of on what God has said. The temptation to avoid obedience to God's word in the name of holiness. The temptation to reduce Christianity and God-honoring worship to external rituals and religious behavior that lacks inward reality and authenticity, that threatens us. The danger of hypocrisy is ever-present. We are in constant danger, furthermore, of being defiled by our evil thoughts, evil actions, and our evil speech. And I believe that this defilement has, is, is really subjective and objective, meaning it's a real defilement before God. So this defilement is a fact, but it's also a feeling. That's why when you commit any of these sins, whether evil thoughts or evil actions or evil words, you feel dirty, you feel unclean. And, and, and that's, that's by God's design. It should make us feel dirty and unclean, and they should cause us to flee to the fountain of Christ to be washed and cleansed. Another danger I think that this chapter presents is that of looking down upon others that we deem unworthy of Christ. The disciples looked upon this woman and said, just send her away. And I want you to know that every person you come into contact with is a potential brother or sister in Christ. Every one of them. Don't ever give up on people. You might have grandkids. Maybe you've told yourself, she'll never come. He'll never believe. This chapter teaches you to hope and to pray and to labor against that kind of thinking. We have much to learn about God-honoring faith from this Canaanite woman. She teaches us that real faith looks to Christ Real faith calls upon his name, appeals to his mercy, acknowledges his lordship, pursues his presence, worships his greatness, agrees with his words, and receives his blessing. And I think lastly, this chapter ought to stir our affections to offer heartfelt praise and worship to the God who does more than just drop crumbs down from his table to us 
in Christ. Our God has spread a table and a feast for us to enjoy and be satisfied in now. And as the bride of Christ has promised that we will one day feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. By God's effectual call, by his sovereign grace, we are the many who in Matthew chapter 8 will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Christ's feeding of the thousands are but faint glimpses, friends, of the eternal feast to which we are headed. Listen to Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a feast of rich food full of marrow and an aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, which, by the way, is quoted in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to talk about the glorious day of resurrection when this will have been fulfilled. And after that, Isaiah is telling us, after the grand eschatological day of resurrection and we, are, we, 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 we inherit the kingdom, what is it from there? God says everlasting feast and satisfaction in his presence. For all peoples, not just Jew. Yeah, he came first for the Jew. But all we see, he has come to save Gentile dogs and transform them into outstanding citizens in his kingdom. God loves to take the most unlikely converts, polish them, sparkle them up, and put them as jewels on our worthy Redeemer's crown. To him be the glory.